Hello and welcome to 361 Live. My name is Ben Smith. I'm joined by Ewan McLeod from Mobile Industry Review and Rafe Blanford from All About Symbian and All About Windows Phone. Tonight we're recording 361 Degrees Live from Digital Agency OBI's offices on Brick Lane in London. Yay! On our panel this evening, Ed Hodges, Head of Mobile, Business and Commercial Royal Bank of Scotland. Mark Squires, Nokia's Head of Communications for Western Europe. Stephen Pinches, Head of Emerging Technologies for the FT Group. Ilko Elia, Head of Mobile here at LBI. And Rafe Blanford, Editor of All About Symbian and All About Windows Phone. You buy a room full of people one free drink and they are so grateful. <laughs> Okay, and our first question this evening comes from Nigel Alexander. What would the panel like to comment on whether we will see any operators or more than one operator active in their own right by 2015, given the consolidation that is happening across the networks in the UK? Okay, so this, this follows news about network sharing, I think, for Vodafone and O2 on their 4G network. Obviously, there's existing uh, collaborations between... Uh, T-Mobile and Orange, thank you, Eli. So, um, Ed Hodges. I think, uh, now that, uh, you know, in, coming from inside a large business, is that if you can take that infrastructure and share it across many, you can reduce the cost of that infrastructure and roll it out to market faster, provided by, uh, all the companies involved, okay, can get on with each other. That's a major cultural issue there. If you can get all of that right, then I think for the customer on the other end, you know, taking LTE, uh, services uh, will stand to benefit because, um, first of all, the overall infrastructure comes down in price because of the sharing, and secondly, they become highly competitive between each other because it's only the marketing, it's only the services that they can do on top that differenti differentiates themselves from each other. Okay, you can't act as a cartel, so well, in theory, you can't act as a cartel, so uh, you can start dropping your prices against each other. So I think that's a very good thing. Illico. So. National Rail is doing a great job then, because that's exactly what that's happening there, isn't it? Where you have a single infrastructure uh, company and lots of people running services on top of that infrastructure. Actually, is National Rail doing a great job? I don't know. I don't get many trains. <laughs> <laughs> so, do, again, same question. Do you, do you, do you think that the, the fact that you could end up with one single infrastructure and lots of different brands matter? Because at the moment, on the podcast previously, we've discussed that why, how can you differentiate? Because there is, there is no meaningful metric for customers to differentiate anymore. Does that matter? Well, there isn't, there isn't any meaningful metric at the moment. You, I think most of, the, uh, most of the carriers have, what, 98 99% coverage, although not in Clapham, obviously. Um, but the fact that you have 99% coverage over most of the UK, there is no differentiation there. You're, I think consumers are... Um, they want that stability of a, a, a network coverage wherever they are. And that's, that's the thing that's a baseline that everyone needs to work from. When you layer on top of that the different services, those different services that you layer on top of that infrastructure is what then makes you a good or viable or uh, company that works or not. Mark Squires, how does this play out for the hardware manufacturers? I'm not sure how it plays out for hardware manufacturers. What I would say, though, is every company you've mentioned 
um, from National Rail through to the operators um, and picking up something Ed said particularly, which is if they can work together, um, I'd like to drive that down to the raw thing. They're all shareholder-owned companies which are actually trying to make large profits, so there is no business where they will work together unless there is a profit motive. They're not altruistic. They don't exist for the good of any particular charity, although they all do a wonderful job looking after certain charities, but they're in business to make money. And if we take our eye off that ball, we would be sadly mistaken to do so. No different from the company I work is and for anybody else who's actually beholden to shareholders. But I can see the carrot being, um, again, if they can work together, the common infrastructure. I can see that as a cost-efficiency carrot that would at least get them talking. Well, they are talking as as of today. The the question is, would that cost-efficiency actually translate into profitability? I'm not certain it would. If you share a common backbone, how do you start to differentiate? They've, there's been such a rush recently on, uh, what's, what's the latest thing? Giveaway offers. So the rewards points and what have you, that's coming to an end. There's been cycle after cycle with the operators. Normally it's led by one. It comes through. Um, they all copy one another. They have to. The market pressures force them to do it. At the moment, uh, you're seeing people like Vodafone, for example, start to introduce their own handsets. Um, which are obviously made by the same people that make everyone else's, so, and it still goes through. There's a constant search for profits there, and when you get that, it's the death of innovation. Whether they'll be able to share? Hopefully, perhaps, because it's good for everybody, but is it profitable? I don't think so. Steve, you're making mobile applications. Does, mm-hmm. this, have any, does this matter to you? Uh, only in the sense that we, uh, and Ilya will testify to this as well, a few years ago it was all about the discussions with the operators. So we talk a lot with Vodafone and with O2 and it was all about negotiating over rev shares and all that kind of stuff. That's all gone away now. So we do talk to the networks, but really the discussions we're having are with the hardware manufacturers. But um, from, in terms of the networks, I think it's quite interesting that actually if you take a graph from um, monopoly to uh, perfect competition, we're actually in quite a healthy place. We've got you know, a decent group of networks in the UK. It's, a very, it's quite competitive market. And I think what the, the networks have been quite bad at is actually customer segmentation. I think what we'll see by 2015, my personal view is that the networks will get better at cherry picking the customers that they're good at serving. So you'll have a, cust- you'll have a network which is good at serving enterprise customers, one that's good at serving pay-as-you-go, and they'll differentiate that way. But they haven't done that yet. Rafe Blanford, we're, he- we're headed for a very segmented market. I, I think in one sense we are, and that's, that's absolutely right. But I think probably what we'll see is government regulation ensure that there are at least two distinct networks. And we're already seeing that in the UK with the breakdown of marsh sharing and, and network sharing. And I'd expect that to continue because there is more complexity in this kind of infrastructure and there's going to be more investment required with uh, 4G and what comes after that, that coming up. So I don't expect it to become you know, like the gas pipelines or like the electricity network. But what I do expect to see is the network to just be basic hygiene, it's assumed, and then what we'll see is the operators competing on what they can do in addition to that, and people will call it the smart pipe, I'm thinking about over-the-top services, and that's where the differentiation will come. Customer segmentation, but also there might be a promise about quality of service, maybe you can pay extra to download it more quickly, or an, or an extra, extra service, there's all kinds of potential there, and that's where I expect um, there's to still be multiple operators because there are multiple offerings and there's still a lot of innovation. I think innovation does tend to uh, you know, mitigate consolidation. Isn't, isn't segmentation these days uh, driven by which apps you choose rather than by uh, how much you choose to spend per month? So you're, you're, making, a, uh, you're making an over-the-top services point. Right. Okay. 
So over, over the top services being the, the, almost the ability to, to take the network out, out of the equation and, and run Skype or run you know, instant messaging or video services over the network just using their data. Right, that's right. So just thinking through what you, what you guys are saying about the customer segmentation needing to get better, if these guys are acting just as pipes and they're delivering LTE, okay, so it's a little faster to download things, I thought the direction we're going in, and the, one of the reasons we have all these slate-type handsets is because customers choose their own segmentation by choosing the individual apps and services that they want on top of that these days. Let's, uh, let's, let's, go, out, let's go out to the audience, because I, I can see a few hands, and you, you McLeod, is the master of the microphone. I'm Miss Jen. Uh, you all are talking about the UK right now, but the world is very large, and I would hope that your companies are on, not only serving this one island. Um, in the <laughs> No, I like this island. Jen, Jen, just remind us, which part of Canada are you from? I'm from Los Angeles, which is southern Canada, very southern Canada. Um, um, but we get a lot of Canadian in the winter because they like us. Um, so in the States, where people are sharing networks, um, you have Virgin Mobile sits on top of Sprint. Um, there is a couple of regional carriers that sit on top of people's networks. Generally, that means crap service. Anyone with a brain will go to the original carrier of that network, whether that be Sprint or Verizon, um, and not with these smaller living on top of, shall we say, the network stack. These are often what we call MVNOs. Right, yes. right. So you guys are basically talking about the UK becoming one big gargantuan MVO. How in the heck is their coverage going to be any good? How, how, how did they not become ghettoized? Because I guess what I'm trying to say is these services in the States that do this, they're just, like Sprint will, will how do you call it when they, they dampen the service? Thank you. No, no, no. You like traffic shaping. They, they, traffic they rate shaping. limits. Throttle. Throttle. Thank you. Yeah. Right, put that in your pipe and smoke it, panel. Well, uh, I think Dump we should pipe. point out that America is rather a special place. <laughs> 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 it's, a, it's a unique market, and particularly talking about the way the networks are put together, there's a lot of the regional carriers own bits of spectrum and own bits of the infrastructure and have had their rights grandfathered in. So frankly, it's a complete mess out there. I think it will change a little bit when LTE comes in because the uh, spectrum allocations have, are going to dramatically reshape the US market in terms of operators. Illico. I don't think we're, we're comparing like for like there. I think you compare a, a US market with maybe Europe as opposed to just one single country. Um, where, and, and I think actually the idea that you have a single, much more stable infrastructure on which other people can, can deliver their services is actually potentially a good thing because you could then start to gain stability. And I think the, the biggest thing that I personally want is the fact that I can go out and know I will get coverage, not I might get coverage. And whether it's much faster than LTE or whether it's 3G, I don't really care. I want consistent coverage, which means I then know that I can do something with my phone when I'm, when I'm out. Okay, let's wrap this one up. Just finally, let's go back to the questioner and uh, let's ask Nigel, what you, did you have a, a particular view in mind when you asked the question? Well, just actually, it's something that's been intriguing me because I just see that the, the, the differentiation is coming from basically being driven by applications and by over-the-top services. And I just can't see how the network operators can change because they're fundamentally stuck in their point-to-point -point, um, engineering role and not in the role of, of innovation and uh, seeing how people actually really need to use these services rather than actually just providing the services. Thank you very much.
Okay, so let's move on to our next question. Uh, Dominic Travers. Smartphones are, are taking off in huge quantities in developing markets, but those markets are very price conscious. Who has the mix of hardware and software to compete with Android at the $100 price point? Mark Squires. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's, a fair, it's a fair point, and um, I, would, I would say it's not just the Far East market. I, I firmly believe, at the risk of upsetting Jen again, that the UK market is being driven by nothing but a desire for everybody to actually look the same as everybody else and have a, a tablet-based device. And it's very few people who actually will stick with keypads. I know one person in this room, Steve, for example, loves his keypad on his phone, but um, there's, not, uh, there's not everybody who goes down that route. My, my comment to that would be, yes, our company does have, uh, as you probably saw this week, uh, S40 devices, which are touchscreen. Uh, we've had dual SIM devices at very low prices, the Asher range in particular in the, the developing countries. It's doing very well. But we have to be so careful that we're not commenting on localised trends rather than where we actually end up. Because the fact of the matter is what we're seeing at the moment is a drive towards uh, tablet-based devices, to use Ed's comment, that's been driven because of the apps that appear need a larger screen to use the app successfully. The app in turn drives data usage, which comes back to the first question of how do you supply a pipe that's price conscious enough. So I think you really have to throw your mind way past the cost of the basic equipment and look at the actual cost of infrastructure use of application purchase and actual application usage for the total picture of whether that success will take place. So, Stephen, it doesn't matter if you can buy a $100 device if, it costs, if it's unaffordable to run it over a network. Yeah, there's that. But also, I think it's easy to uh, make an assumption about developing countries, emerging markets, that everyone's got, you know, sort of feature phones and they're all kind of running on, you know, really, really crappy handsets. And we, we've just launched into India, uh, an app into India. Uh, and we made the same assumption, and we went and uh, spoke to a few local partners, and the, the advice we got generally was target low-end phones, you know, go for volume, and we didn't at all. We went for the iPhone, and it was, it was actually a really good move because there are loads of people with iPhones in India. Even in markets where the iPhone hasn't launched, uh, you know, for our market, people, people have still got them. So you have to be quite careful about making assumptions about what phone people are using depending on the market that you're going for. To go back to the original question, right, which is who can play at that, I think, at that $100 point, who, who's, who's going to win in that? Who, who can compete versus Android because Android is owning that space at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yes, we can, right. and we can do it on economies of scale, but don't forget we're not necessarily competing like for like. The number of those Android devices are made by manufacturers with what I will now define running close to the swind, as my father used to be as a sailor, as interestingly funded companies. <laughs> I, I, I'm just wrestling with the legal implications of what I ask you next. Can you name any specific? Yes. No, but, but you, when you say, when you say can you compete, you're, you're looking at all the manufacturers in the world. Every manufacturer works at a different tax point. Every manufacturer works at a different manufacturing cost. We all manufacture in various places in the world, but, you know, some people are helped more than others. It's one of those things in life. Iliko. Um, are we agreed that Apple don't want to play in that arena? time being do we think just for the time being or is it do we think they actually want to be expensive and niche -er? it depends whether you get to <laughs> iPhone 7 and the 3GS is now priced at $79 mm. 
So we'll find out tonight, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but if you if you think about the what people what people want, rather than the rather than the sort of the cost, rather than the drive from what it costs to make a device, think about the cost. Um, I visited Beijing a few years ago, and whilst you walked around, there were a lot of feature phones on sale. That would that would give you the impression that the market demanded feature phones. As soon as you pulled out a, a high-end device, that was what people in Beijing were aware of and aspired to. And it was only availability or cost that was limiting them, and both of those things were, were diminishing fast. So, do you think that we're we're saying actually that that people who are developing low-end phones for emerging markets are skating to where the puck is now? You know, to use the uh, uh, no, I think I think it's the fact that you can develop a a, a very good phone, the, and the Usher series are actually very good phones. Um, the fact that they're being targeted at a, at, a, at a different audience doesn't mean they're any less capable phones. They're just different, actually. Uh, Rafe, s- tell me something about BlackBerry in all of this. I know it's not your... F- uh, it's not yes, your make fourth. sure you specify some good information about BlackBerry, please. Right, OK, with you in over my shoulder, I, I'll make sure I do that. I, I think BlackBerry will want to play in this space, but I think it will find it difficult to do so because of the economies of scale... And I think the, the service component that comes with BlackBerry is becoming more complex. So you look at something like BBM, which I think really drove their, you know, their success in this you know, cheap smartphone space. And I think something like WhatsApp has kind of overtaken that. I, I would also be wary of labelling this £100 space as smartphones. Um, I think it's dangerous to use the smartphone definition across such a broad section of the market. So it's more helpful to talk about whether you want to call it Quade smartphone or mini smartphone, um, those equipped to do best here, I think, are the ones who can benefit most from economies of scale. So it is going to be local companies to local need and then global companies that can do it on economies of scale, and that's Samsung and Nokia for me. Stephen Pinches. The other thing to bear in mind is that if you want to offer that kind of price point, you need to think about how much of the value chain you're capturing. So if you're a company who can get into mobile payments on a big scale, plus you know, the, the uh, provision of network, plus the handset, then the $100 price point makes a lot more sense. So because, because when you're adding services, you might choose not to make any money on the $100 price point. Yeah, it's price the point. blade model. You, can, and, you, can, you might even give it away. Yeah. Uh, and let's be honest, anybody who's spent any time travelling in Asia will know that dual SIM is a far more important driver sometimes than the hardware. Okay. Let's go out to the, uh, let's go out to the audience. Quad so, have we any questions? What's him, yeah. Yeah, uh, sir, what's your name? Uh, Mike Stead. Um, so, two years ago, we saw the uh, ZTE Blade, a.k.a. Orange San Francisco, at 99 quid. I bought one from an orange shop on the bus back to work, bought the uh, unlock code for 99p on eBay. It was unlocked straight away. The shops were selling out just hand over fist. Everyone was telling everyone. Half the housewives in the village where I live have now got one because their husbands went out and bought them because they said, you know, this is what you want. You don't want an iPhone, you want this. Now, we've, you know, recently we saw Vodafone it should be, with... It should be noted that Mike lives in the 1950s, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite stupid. Um, uh, and, and just recently we saw Vodafone come out with 70 quid for this uh, Smart 2 handset, even higher spec for 70 quid, you know. You know, it does everything that an iPhone can do except Siri, which no one ever uses. You know, so, I mean, how do you possibly react to that? Is it now, it's just an absolute commodity. You want three and a half inch touchscreen GPS Wi-Fi, done, 70 quid. Where's the profit in that for anyone? Mark. <laughs> I love the way this always comes to me. The, 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 the option, I mean, where's the profit into it? 
is an interesting question because at the end of the day, providing you're selling the thing you're making for more than it's cost you for the component parts and the employment and actually hopefully a certain amount of, as I mentioned earlier, altruistic way of approaching the world, which I like to think we have got a Nokia, believe it or not, I think it's fine because you're giving employment, you're paying back your shareholders, you're doing everything else. The fact of the matter is, though, that this is driven by a race to get the next billion people connected and those people are coming now with an expectation the first 1.3 billion never had. And that expectation is to access the web, which for a lot of them, not all of them, but for a lot of them, does not exist in any other form to where they are. So, so what we're seeing is, sorry, just very quickly, Ben, but what we're seeing is not necessarily a supplying of something low cost to somebody who doesn't expect more. I think we're seeing a demand for something low cost to somebody actually in a part of the world who expects far more than the so-called first world did when it first had a product. So this, com this conversation has gone two ways. We've talked about emerging mm. markets and the fact that a $100 handset makes people accept, access the internet and these services for the first time. And we've also talked about, we've also talked about the UK and the fact that the, sort of the affordable phone. So if we focus on the, the next billion, as Mark says, um, Rafe, is the $100 price point meaningful for the next billion? Or should that be the $50 phone or the $10 phone? I would be tempted to say that it should be less than that, um, and we can talk about subsidies and pricing as one thing, but I would say, speaking about the success of that Android $100 phone, it's just the first entry in that space, and I do feel that um, it's actually a pretty inelegant solution. There is a lot more to be done there, and just as we've seen smartphones develop, I feel that that's a segment or a generic thing we'll be able to talk about as the next version comes along, and there's several possibilities. Okay, uh, we have a, a question in the audience. Hi there, Anwar. So the only comment I wanted to add, um, so coming from, I guess, technically a third world country or developing country, whichever one you want to call it, so a lot of it is not just about the hardware, as Mark said. So services and accessing the services is not always easy. So if you had a device that allowed you to access a service, whether it's preloaded or free, you know, just, you know, Nokia Drive, for example, a lot of people in India use that application. Again, you may not want to buy a, a secondary device. People in the UK may have a TomTom -tom or something else. But somebody who's got probably just enough money to buy one good piece of hardware, you know, they'd probably go and buy a Nokia phone, which has got Nokia Drive already built in. So, if you, and I just, uh, sorry, where do, you, where do you work, sir? At, at Nokia at the moment. But from, from, from your, just, just if we stay with that point for a second, from your experience, don't go away, you, because I want to ask this guy another question. Just from your, exper from your, experience, of, from your experience of those markets, though, um, what matters most? What, would people spend money on services or would people spend money on hardware? I think in this current climate, it's, it's, it's both, purely because, again, you have a limited budget. You know, you want to buy something, you know, you aspire to, you know, you probably can't afford to buy an Aston Martin, so you go for something, you know, it's a good brand, offers you the service, and connects it to the world. And I think the hardware and the services go together as a single piece nowadays. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Just going by anecdotal evidence uh, in parts of Southern Africa, it's like the hardware is like the ticket to get into the show. And the show that I'm hearing at the moment is uh, apps like WhatsApp, because they circumvent SMS charges. So that, to me, that's a great example of how to understand uh, the so-called emerging markets. Thank you very much. And uh, 
stay there, Ewan, because we're going we're to move on now. And actually, our next question is from Steve. Um, so my question is around privacy. Um, app developers, mobile networks, hardware makers, basically everybody lately has been caught uh, in some way violating uh, users' privacy. So my question is kind of twofold. Like, users don't seem to care, but should we trust all of these uh, players in the market with our privacy? And related to that is, what is going to cause the wake-up call? Because I don't think users care. I think they're like, you know, I'll give you loads of my data, and you give me something in return, and I'll, I'll forget about it after that point. Ed Hodges of Banking Group, RBS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, first of all, we take uh, your privacy extremely, <laughs> extremely seriously. All right. Okay, I'll put that, so putting that to one side. Um, it, it's a conundrum, right? It's really difficult because the concept of privacy and what you get for it has driven the valuation of a number of startups. You know, it's, it's the data you get back from having access to people's privacy that gives them the, the, uh, the sellout price in the first place. So we're still in flux at the moment where people haven't yet worked out how much they actually want to give away of, of their uh, privacy in return for what information we get to help them. So um, do I think that, that uh, you know, most businesses are trustworthy? Yes, I think most people at most businesses are trustworthy and don't drive down to the point of knowing individually about you and everything about you and bandy that around inside a business, okay? But I, I do imagine that most businesses create cohorts and use, I mean, probably quite tight cohorts and work out from that how they segment their customers. But it's a give and take world, right? How do you get an app perfect? Actually, no app's perfect. How do you get an app close to perfect without taking some of that information that privacy allows? It's got to be a give and take. And, uh, and uh, as you said at the moment, people don't care. I guess they will care more in the future. But we still need to find that rough balance. Otherwise, you're just not going to get a great app. Iliko, what's going to make people care about privacy, particularly in mobile? Um, when something bad happens to you personally. Mm. Um, so my uncle got um, his Facebook account hacked. And because his password for Facebook and Betfair and William Hill... Um, were all the same as his Hotmail account. They therefore had access to basically all of his... What, what is that password? Um, <laughs> well, I've changed it to Silly Billy. Put it that way. <laughs> um, but, you know, once, once it happens once, you know not to keep your passwords the same. And the, the thing is, I, I, I think people like Facebook are doing privacy completely wrong. Uh, I think they need to... Facebook don't care about my photos... They care about the metadata around my photos. Mm. They're not interested in me. They're interested in my connections. So they're not actually interested in the stuff that I do, but how that affects everything, everyone else. And once you realize that actually Facebook isn't a safe place for your photos, because actually they might just delete them for a, as, a, as a first, let alone actually getting, giving other people access to, those, to that information, um, you start to then start to think, actually, I need to keep hold of my data and use the networks as what they're actually for, which is just distributing that around and not really caring about that myself. Rafe, can users, can users understand where their data is going and what's going on? For example, uh, recently a number of applications have been shown to be sending data uh, back to servers, not necessarily for malicious use, but not without telling users that they were doing that and without users having any idea. So how can, how can users even make an informed decision, let alone make a, you know, 
uh, let alone make that decision on good information? I honestly don't think they can most of the time. It, it assumes a level of sophistication that just doesn't exist. To have that kind of awareness, you'd have to build something into the platform. And I just don't see it happening because it's not in enough people's interests, um, essentially. Uh, and I think we have to be careful to um, divide privacy from security. I think the security question is going to get answered by things like biometrics, for example, or once you've got stuff embedded into you personally, but that's still going to leave the privacy issue. And that's an age-old one, and you can wear your tinfoil hat or you can be a Luddite about it, uh, but it essentially needs careful policy management to, to sort that one out. And where would you embed it, Rafe? I have to ask after that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think probably it would be here, given it's the fastest healing part of your body. And for, every, for everyone listening on the podcast with which there are no pictures, perhaps Rafe could tell me where he just pointed. I, I just pointed at my wrist. Okay. Mark, what, taking your Nokia hat off and just thinking about you in your personal life, what would make, what's the boundary for you in terms of what information you're happy to put into a mobile app that you've downloaded from an app store? Right, let, let, let's, let's uh, put my, another hat on. I, I'm a governor of a group of schools, actually, and I give advice to kids on this type of thing. Um, and one of them, the questions we try and prepare them for with life is finances. And I'm great for saying to them what my father used to say to me, which is, you only get independent financial advice if you pay for it. Any other financial advice is paid somehow else and it's paid for by your money. You only get free apps when you pay for them. And the way you're paying for those free apps is that you're either reading adverts as they come to you or you're sharing your information. So the question is, can you share that information and protect your identity in the process? There are good reasons for doing that. Uh, you probably know with Nokia's extensive LNC, sorry, Nokia hat slipping back on, uh, we did some experiments in the US where we had cities where we were tracking phone movements and using it to predict traffic flow with no personal data being exchanged at all. That's all well and good, but for every lock there's a key. And sadly, every time that you entrust your data on the web, and I'll pick up at this point exactly, because passwords are a fascinating thing at the moment, because I think at the last count I had something like 200 online accounts, all of which I'm trying to manage with different frantically here, which is a horrible sight, I have to tell you, for those people listening to this. Wrist, not a wrist. Oh, OK. I thought he was trying to raise a vein for a minute there. Um, but um, coming from Cambridge, we, we actually did have a, a, a professor in Cambridge, you can find on the web, who did just this. He implanted biometrics into his wrist and used it to open all the doors of the it, building. If it's can good we point out for our Dan Lane has mm. done exactly the same. Was it Dan? Yeah. Oh, so well done, it. Dan. I, I, but I, I think that the problem with that is, um, and those of you familiar with biometrics will know that there are quite some nice horror stories going around on the web where people have lost the odd thumb. To, to robberies, um, just because it's quite easy if someone's got biometrics and you want to steal something, just to tap them on the head and take their thumb off. So, you know, there's, there's no easy answer to this. The truth is, if you're not paying for it, the likelihood is you are going to pay for it. Stephen, it, it, we, in the question, the questioner mentioned um, the fact that nobody really has a good story to tell in this space. Everybody's been caught with their fingers in the pot at some point, either deliberately or accidentally. Um, do, do you think it needs regulation? Does it need somebody well, to step already, in? I mean, we've already got obviously the EU Privacy Directive, which is a pretty half-assed piece of legislation, which, you know, is, is based on a technical solution, i.e. cookies, which immediately is flawed because basically if you have a native application, you can do what the hell you like, which is, is pretty crazy to, to begin with. Um, and I think they're answering the wrong question with the le le legislation. The question that people want answered, or certainly I want answered, is how do I manage my profile online and how do I make sure that I'm in charge of what people see? I don't want Facebook 
being the, the, the gatekeeper of my profile, I'd like to be able to um, edit what I display to people. And I want some kind of sort of demilitarized area. I don't know how you create that, where it's not commercially controlled. It's something that I'm in control of. Um, do, you think, do you think Facebook's made a good start? By the, you know, the, they made the, a bad start, but I think they've kind sorry, of sorry, re- yeah, they've recovered from it slightly. Yeah. But I don't think they're the right gatekeepers. And I think the role of the EU should actually possibly be, maybe this is, I don't know, depends on your views of, of government, but would be to try and carve out that space where people can create a, um, a non-commercial profile uh, which can be accessed by lots of different services. Okay. Called Open ID. Something like that, something similar to that, but that has maybe more facets of your information. Okay, let's, let's go out to the audience. Have we any questions? Terence Eden. So uh, I give all my data to, to Facebook and to Spotify. Um, they, they know everything about me, and yet the adverts on there are still crap. Um, I'm serious. Every, every, if, if Spotify are listening, why am I always hearing the same advert for something that I'm never going to click on or purchase? It's nothing to do with me. So I'm giving all this data away, so I'm being told, but nothing is coming back. So what's happening to it? Okay, let's, let's, t- let's take another question, and then we'll come back to the panel. Anyone, anyone else? Alfie Denon. Uh, this question is, is quite related to that which Eden has, which is that uh, you talked earlier about segmentation, and it, it seems that really no companies dealing with big data are particularly good at segmentation, nor at actually determining who their best customers are. And much like Eden's, I don't really ever get any good advertising. So my question is, who is in the best position when privacy and other kind of legislative areas are, are, are better addressed to actually tackle big data in a way that's meaningful to me as someone being advertised to. Stephen, who's, who, who, could, who can do this well and why isn't it being done well now? I think there's always this assumption that there's another company somewhere else is doing, doing big data really well. The fact is people only, companies only need to do big data well enough to earn a good profit. Um, and Facebook... Sorry. Hello, hello. Do to, me, sure we get it. Does it make me sound a bit more manly? Yeah. <laughs> That's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so fa- Facebook obviously... Um, are making enough money at the moment, well, not making enough money to keep their share price up, but um, you know, there's an expectation that they'll make money eventually. So there's not, a, there's, there's not an enormous imperative on them cracking the big data problem right this moment. They get, they're getting there. Um, and if they can carve out a few decent segments and they can make decent return on those segments over the next few months, they don't have to have a perfect answer. They don't have to have the best uh, targeting that they've ever had. They just need to find some really profitable targets and serve some reasonably, um, you know, uh, successful ads to them and stop doing hair loss ads, or maybe that's just me. But, you know, it's <laughs> definitely not terrible. Um, the, the ads I see on the FT application um, don't particularly... Um, You're uh, not our target demographic. No, but they must work, because they come back to you again and again, I presume. We don't... On the, on the main app, it's mainly sold on a sponsorship basis, so it's a very broad target of wealthy business people. Ed Hodges. <laughs> Talking of, uh... <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm going to pick up from from that and actually drop it down a, a lower, a further, and say I, I think this idea of big data and looking across a number of businesses that I've uh, come across um, don't understand it yet. This idea, I think, there's only very few businesses out there that do, and even they are still learning, which is why they haven't come back to uh, to give you the very targeted views, um, Terence. So I think, I think you've got the likes of Google and Facebook and others that would claim to have the people internally, okay, the actuaries all the way through to the rocket scientists that are there currently working out how to analyze 
big data properly to give a decent return. And all the rest of us are playing catch up. You know, it's something that uh, I would love to do is lay my hands on a few guys out of Google to come and join me to um, help me analyze fully and totally without, without being rude to my analytics team who are doing a grand job. But they're in an open space that they are uh, um, learning quickly. I'd, you know, it's very expensive to go and find someone who's done it already so I can get the analytics absolutely spot on. That's why we're still missing in a lot of applications the ability to target the right.